In the past couple of years, one of the biggest apologists that the Christian faith has known passed away. There was a ministry built around his name. They sent apologists all over the world to defend different aspects of the Christian faith. He's written numerous books. So many books that it's probably, and you have one of his books without even knowing. There are videos of him on YouTube with millions and millions of views that demonstrate and show him articulating these answers that defend our faith. After he passed, this information slowly began to come to light. Scandal after scandal, disgrace after disgrace, his work, his ministry, and ultimately the church was harmed because of the lack of integrity of this man. It's a tragedy that isn't uncommon for us today, unfortunately, that men would rise up, that leaders would rise up, and would disgrace the name of Jesus. Today, in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus wants to warn us about following false teachers, false religious leaders, by helping us to see what's at the core many times. Today's main point is to demonstrate that hypocrisy is the mark of false religion and humility is the mark of the people of God. Hypocrisy is the mark of false religion and humility is the mark of the people of God. I want to take you into the context of where we've been in this passage it's still Tuesday. It's Holy Week. Jesus has cursed a fig tree. He's been teaching in the temple. He's taught three different parables. He's answered three different questions. And last week, Jesus asked a question to his challengers to reveal to them that the Messiah was the son of David and that he would be David's Lord. You might be asking, why, why was this important? Why was the declaration that Jesus comes from the line of David, that he was the Messiah, why was this important at the end of chapter 22? Because that's what Matthew has been trying to show us all throughout the book that he's been writing. He's been trying to show us time and time again through his gospel 
that Jesus is the Messiah. If you look at verse 1 of chapter 1, Matthew writes, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. From the beginning of the book, Matthew is demonstrating that Jesus is the Messiah. He's been revealing his identity all throughout. And what's interesting about our passage today is this was the job of the religious leaders. Their job initially was to teach the people the scriptures of God. Their job initially was to lead the people and to prepare them for the arrival of the Messiah. So that the people would know the scripture and be able to see him and spot him upon his arrival. But as we have seen in the book of Matthew, these religious leaders were focused on their own selves and their own glory. And they had led the people down a religious path that was contrary to God's path. Today, Jesus returns to the conversation and the theme of hypocrisy and to the theme of greatness and humility within the kingdom. Jesus, once again, wants to show us that greatness comes with servanthood. And that exaltation is only received through humility. When I was growing up, I attended a private school. And when you, we had chapel every Wednesday. And when you turned and became a third grader, you were expected to take notes. And to turn those notes in so that the teachers could know that you were following along with the pastor. And I remember being asking the question, how do you take notes as a third grader? And my teacher would reply, anytime the pastor repeats something, it's important. He wants to teach you, so take note. These themes have been repeated for us multiple times, church, in the book of Matthew. The theme of humility has come up over and over again. And I think it would be wise of us to take note today, again, to hear the words of the great teacher and to listen. And so if you have your Bibles open today, we'll begin at Matthew chapter 23. Look at how the first verse begins. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples. For the past several chapters, Jesus has been talking to the religious leaders. But he has now turned his attention to speak to the crowd and to speak to his disciples. Again, he wants to warn them from the false religion of the religious leaders. But I want you to know that this warning demonstrates Jesus' love, his mercy. Why? 
Because you warn people that you care about. You warn people that you care for. And what you have here is Jesus warning his disciples and warning the crowds not to follow the false teachers. Jesus doesn't want anyone to misinterpret their false religiosity as true faith. But he also doesn't want us blindly following false teachers. And while we all need to hear the words today that Jesus is proclaiming, those of us here who are in a position of leadership, those of us here who are pastors, deacons, maybe you lead a, an ABF or a small group or you lead another area of ministry, we should specifically be listening today and hear the warnings a little bit more carefully. So look at how the warning begins in verse 2. Let's notice what's at the core of their false religion. Verse 2 says, Then the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so they do and observe, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works that they do. For they preach, but do not practice. Notice that Jesus here warns the people of the scribes and the Pharisees. We've talked about these groups specifically both in the past few weeks. But what we have here are the religious leaders of the day. And these groups have seated, them, have seated themselves on the chair of Moses. You might be thinking, what, what is that? Well, at this time in synagogues, each place of worship normally had a chair. And the person who was present, who was the leading expert or the teacher of the law, would sit at this chair. This isn't too uncommon for us when you think about universities or colleges, where the leading professor of a school sits on an endowed chair. They can be for any subject. They're the leading experts of that subject. Could be the chair of philosophy. Could be the chair of theology. Could be the chair of history. The people that sat at these chairs demonstrated that they were the people of authority. That they had knowledge over the subject. This is why in verse 3, Jesus encourages the people and his disciples to listen to them to heed the words that they were speaking. Why? Because they were meant to be speaking and teaching the law of Moses. They were supposed to be teaching the scriptures. But notice what Jesus says. Look at your verses at verse 3. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach but do not practice. Jesus was warning them not to follow the example of the religious leaders. Why? Because they said, but did not do. They spoke, but did not act. And this is what is at the core of false or inauthentic religion. It's the sin of hypocrisy. It's the sin of saying you are one way when you are not. 
It's the sin of saying you do these things, you think these thoughts, you say these words, and you do not. We've talked much about this sin recently because Jesus has been bringing it up over and over and over again as he's talked with these religious leaders. And in next week, we're going to see that he's going to be much more explicit in his judgment. He's going to call these men hypocrites six times next week. But Jesus is charging us not to be like these religious leaders. It's not improbable that many of us here, when we hear the word hypocrisy, feel some level of conviction. Why? Because if we're true with ourselves, we would be okay to admit that. Because we're not perfect in all that we practice. We want to be, but we're not always gracious. We're not always kind. We're not always compassionate. We don't always follow Jesus the way we would like to. But can I give you the daily preventative action against the sin of hypocrisy? It's the confession of sins. It's the confession of sins. You can't be a hypocrite if you acknowledge and confess the areas in which you fall short. Or in the areas where you're not perfect. Or where you have faults or imperfections. You can't be a hypocrite to your spouse or to your children if you confess your wrongdoings. Do you know that's why here at this church, at times, in our corporate prayer, we confess and we repent? Because we don't want to be a hypocritical church. We want to, be, we want to acknowledge that maybe we don't always do the things we're supposed to do. That maybe we don't always live up to what God's called us to do. We confess our sin because we believe the gospel truly. And we believe that God can change our hearts. That he can in turn change our actions and our thoughts. That's why we confess our sins. And so if you're here today and you're feeling conviction in the sin of hypocrisy in any area of your life, confess, repent. There is forgiveness at the feet of Jesus. But while the sin of hypocrisy is at the core of these religious leaders, notice that there are three ways that these men practiced their hypocrisy. I want us to use these three ways as a litmus for us today to help us to know whether or not we are leaning or falling into the sin of hypocrisy. The first one, look at verse 4. They elevated the standards for others unfairly. They elevated the standards for others unfairly. Look at verse 4. Look at what they did. They, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, 
and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. This is a common mark of the sin of hypocrisy. Expecting more from others than you expect of yourself. Notice what these religious leaders were doing. They were placing additional burdens on the people that they themselves were unwilling to maintain. You know how burdensome this can be? The religious leaders had created something called the Mishnah. This housed an additional 600 commandments of the law. 600 additional commandments. But not only did they have the Mishnah, they wrote other commandments, other teachings and instructions on how to keep those commandments. See, they saw this as a way to protect the law of God. They thought if we can just create these additional laws, they would keep the people from removing, from being so far removed from breaking the law itself. But what this was doing was creating a burden on the people of God. A burden that they themselves did not carry. It demonstrated their self-centeredness of the leaders here. Their lack of care for the people. They had zero spiritual concern for the people of God. There was a lack of compassion and sympathy with no true desire to lead these people in the way of God. They preached, but did not practice. And they allowed for these, for these people to carry these burdens. Notice what it says at the end of verse 4. They were unwilling to move them with their finger. Does this, does this aspect of hypocrisy mark your life? Do you find yourself overbearing others with the commandments of God? Or are you compassionately caring and discipling other believers into maturity? There's a clear distinction there. The religious leaders were overbearing. And it's not difficult to fall into this vice, church. It's not difficult to fall into this vice. The Church of America has struggled with this over and over. I don't doubt that times when, when there are additional commandments placed, that it doesn't first begin from a place of sincerity or genuineness. But normally, it ends up becoming a place where we overbear. We expect people to dress a certain way to come to church. We expect people to speak a certain way so they can come to church. We expect people to look exactly like we do. What's interesting about that is when you come from, uh, when you come from a background that comes from two different cultures, you begin to see how wrong we can get at times. Because what's approved in one culture is not approved in the other. 
And how we do things in, an, in this culture isn't how we do things in that culture. You begin to quickly see how easy it is, it is for us to put additional burdens on our people. Church, let's be careful. Let's be very careful not to do this to one another. I love what Jesus says in Matthew 11. This was our, our call to worship this morning. Come to me, Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you see the contrast there between the religious leaders and Jesus? You see how the religious leaders were overbearing and how Jesus offers a yoke of ease. Jesus didn't come to overbear us with rules and regulations. He came to remove the burden of trying to achieve that which only Jesus could give us. Salvation and rest for our souls. That does not come, church, through our actions. That only comes through the person of Jesus Christ. These men looked to unfairly elevate the standard for others. And secondly, they looked to elevate their own righteousness. They looked to elevate their own righteousness. Look at verse 5. They do all these, th these deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. I can't say it any better than how Jesus has already said it. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. These religious leaders possessed a false righteousness. The things that they did was only a show. It was only a farce. It was only an act. See, the phylacteries were these small boxes that they would strap to their foreheads and to their arms. And they would write little verses in them so that they could tell people they were meditating on the verses all throughout the day. The fringes we see in Numbers 15 where they were placed on the robes to mark the people of God, to mark the Jewish people as the people of God. But the religious leaders of this day had enlarged them. They were overextended so that, that they could be seen dragging to demonstrate their righteousness. Careful, church, about displaying your righteousness out in public. Again, this is a common theme in the book of Matthew. Jesus has already warned us of this in Matthew chapter 7. He tells us not to give, not to pray, not to fast in such a way that people can see your acts. Be watchful of how you display your righteousness. Because remember, church, it's not our righteousness. It's Jesus. We boast about the righteousness that we have in Christ Jesus. They elevated the standards of others. They elevated their righteousness. And lastly, 
they elevated their own glory. They elevated their own glory. Look at verse 6. And they loved the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. Do you notice in verse 6, it says that they love. This is what they loved. They loved these things. They loved to be honored and celebrated. They loved to be seen in the religious places. They loved to be respected by the praise of man. This is, this is why they did all that they did. They did it for their own glory. This was a clear demonstration of their pride and of their arrogance. I wonder, I wonder why you come to church today. Why do you serve here at church? Is it so you could be honored and praised? Are you gunning for a position at the church because you purely want the title and recognition? If this is you today, it could demonstrate that you're leaning into the sin of hypocrisy. Jesus doesn't just give us a warning against false religiosity. He doesn't just show us how self-seeking the sin of hypocrisy is, but he contrasts that in this passage. He contrasts how those within the kingdom of God look different than the religious leaders of that day. Look at verse 8 with me. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher. You are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor the Christ. I want you to notice that first you in verse 8. That you in the Greek is, in, is emphatic. It's overemphasized. The emphasis tends to lead scholars to think that Jesus has turned his attention to focus on his disciples. To, to kind of say, you aren't supposed to be this way. But it's also not improbable that Jesus includes the crowds in this, in this section to emphasize the distinction between those within the kingdom and the religious leaders of that day. But look at the, look at the contrast. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. First, Jesus said those within the kingdom shouldn't be concerned with titles or recognition. Jesus isn't completely abolishing the use of titles here. There are several examples in the New Testament where we see titles are still used and important. Paul talks about pastors and deacons and teachers and evangelists. Paul even calls himself a father of Timothy in 1 Timothy. But what Jesus is saying is don't look for self-recognition 
in your title here on earth. Don't let that be your identity. Don't let that be what you strive for. Because his reasoning is that we have one teacher. We have one great teacher. Jesus also gives us a second reason for why this should not be the case. He says at the end of verse 8, because we are all brothers, Jesus says. There's a mutuality among us here today if you are in Christ Jesus. There should exist a mutual love, a mutual, a mutual care. This is why Peter opens his second letter the way he does. Listen to what Peter says. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you hear what Peter is saying? Peter is an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter walked with Jesus for three years. Peter saw Jesus' miracles. Peter saw the resurrected Christ. And yet here in 2 Peter, he says that we have an equal faith like his. Meaning what? That there is, no, there is no level hierarchy among believers. Why? Because our righteousness comes from Christ alone. There's no one here who has a greater value than someone else based on their spirituality. Not the pastors, not the deacons, not the teachers of our class. None of us bring a special spirituality to the table. We're all equals because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And this should be our mindset as we come together to worship, as we come together to, to gather. Notice the second contrast. It says we should not look to elevate our own righteousness but the righteousness of Christ. Again, why do any of us boast if it's not for Jesus Christ? Look at verses 11 through 12. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. This is a complete contrast to the identity of a hypocrite. In this one verse, Jesus contrasts his disciples with the religious leaders of the day to demonstrate what humble servanthood looks like. Again, the topic of greatness comes back to the table. Do you remember just a few chapters ago, they asked the question, what, what does it take to be great in the kingdom? It comes up over and over again. What makes someone great? Jesus says, servanthood. Servanthood is what makes someone great. This is 
This is a type of greatness that is countercultural. It's a different type of greatness that our culture promotes. Has anybody ever walked into a job review and they asked how you did on servanthood and how that would determine your next promotion? That's not the case. Servanthood is overlooked here in our culture. But Jesus says, this is how, it's, how you are to be great. If you want to see yourself as great, if you want to be considered great, be a servant. Look at how this attitude and posture is contrasted from the sin of hypocrisy. When you're a servant, you look at the interests of others. Isn't that what Paul teaches us in 2 Philippians? When you're a servant, your attention is turned to others. You take the focus off yourself and immediately place it on other people. When you're a servant, you act without care of being seen or noticed. This is the type of servanthood that is truly great. Can I give you some examples? You know, when you pray for the needs of others in the privacy of your room? Can I tell you, if you're here today and you pray for members of First Serving in the privacy of your room, I want you to know that you are great. You know, when you meet the needs of someone in your small group without the rest of the group knowing, that's what, that's what we're looking for. That's what greatness is found. When you serve the church in the smallest of tasks, when you serve the church in the mundane, this is what makes you great. When you're a servant, you exemplify the trait of humility. When you're a servant, you exemplify the trait of humility. You don't go looking for the praise of people. You're completely fine with the master receiving all of the glory. Look at the last verse. Look at verse 12. Look how, how Jesus ends. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Notice those who exalt themselves here in this world will be humbled. And those who are humbled will be exalted. Those verbs, humbled and exalted, grammatically show a future tense. You're probably thinking, why is that important? Because what this verse demonstrates is that there's no guarantee that if you act as a servant here on this earth, that you will receive the praise and exaltation in this lifetime. But the promise is, in the next, you will. You will hear the words, well done, good and faithful servants. If you live a lifestyle under the philosophy of Jesus' words on greatness. 
if you live under the philosophy that servanthood will actually make you great. How does that sound to you today, church? How can you know where your heart lies in this matter? Ask yourself the question. Are you okay with quietly serving the Lord without the guarantee of praise in this lifetime? Are you okay with coming and serving the people of God and serving your neighbors and loving them and never receiving an ounce of praise? I remember my first year leading a youth ministry mission trip. We took, we took the kids and we went to Arkansas. And we went to a very rural place in Arkansas. It was real rural. I mean, it's something I had never seen before. And we went to help a, a, a church plant, a Hispanic church plant. And so I hope that when you hear the word Hispanic and you hear the word Arkansas, that the numbers of that rural population drop even further. But there was a church that was committed to reaching this people. And so we went and we helped for a week. We did different things throughout the week to hand out invitations to what would be the climax of the week, which would be an evangelistic service. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, we were, we were trying to get ready to have people come to this service on Friday night. So Friday night happened. The doors opened, and no one came. Not one person showed up. So it became an, became an evening of prayer. We began to pray for the pastor. We began to pray for the city. We began to pray for his ministry. And I want you to know, I learned one of the biggest lessons that week for the work of ministry. It was the pastor's turn to pray. And I knew what I expected him to pray. I knew it. He was going to pray for more people. He was going to pray for a bigger building. He was going to pray for a better location. Because those are the things that we deem as great, isn't it? I was shocked, church, by his prayer. He prayed that the Lord would just find him faithful. That the Lord would just find him a faithful servant over the people he had been entrusted with. This is the type of humility that God is requiring of all that are within the kingdom. That we would not look at our own interest, but we would only look at the interest of our king and what he desires of us as a people. The idea of humility is such an important trait. It's a theme that's been repeated over and over again. Church, I hope we don't 
miss what Jesus has been trying to teach us in the book of Matthew. I want to give you something to do today. I want to give you some homework today. Is that okay? I want to give you a question to ponder so that as you go out to lunch, as you hang out this afternoon with one another, with your families, I want you to ask this question. What does faithful ministry look like? What does faithful ministry look like? And what faithful ministry am I involved here at First Irving? And so as you go out and you eat, or you go and have coffee this week, you consider God's word, would you, would you just ask this question? Just start it as a conversation among you. What does faithful ministry look like? And what faithful ministry am I involved here at First Irving? How should we respond today? First, if you're a believer and you're walking in the sin of hypocrisy, confess. Remember the gospel. We were saved into freedom of our sin, from our sins. Our identity is not based on the things that we do or don't do but based purely on Jesus Christ. This is a church that believes the gospel. And so I want you to know that your confession won't be received with judgment or harshness. No, no, confess and repent and walk in the truth and in righteousness. Secondly, it's very possible that you're here and you've been discouraged or hurt by the hypocrisy of others. Maybe you've been hurt by the hypocrisy of another church leader. And there's pain that still lingers. Maybe it's someone you know personally, or maybe it's someone you admired publicly in the church. I want to remind you today that our eyes and our attention should not be placed on men but they should be placed on Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who perfectly observed all of the commandments of God and whose commandments are not burdensome. Jesus is the one who is always near to the weary. And he calls us to carry his yoke because it's light and it's easy. It's Jesus who's worthy of all honor, glory, and praise you find yourself discouraged or hurt by the men, by the leaders of the church, I want to remind you that Jesus is our perfect teacher. He's our perfect master. He is our perfect Lord. And he will never fail us. As we pray today, church, let's Let's not be a church marked with hypocrisy. That's what we prayed this morning in our time of corporate prayer. We, we want to be a church that's marked with harmony and with humility for the glory of God. You know, the past several weeks, we've been talking about humility. It's been coming up, coming up, coming up. 
I just want to ask you, how often in this time frame have you prayed and asked God to just give you humility? How often was that a common occurrence in your prayers? Because what we see from the Gospel of Matthew, from the words of Jesus, it's very important for those who walk in the kingdom. So why don't we pray and ask the Lord for that today. Father, we come. And Lord, we just thank you for your word. Father, we ask that you, as a psalmist would say, search our hearts and our thoughts and reveal to us where the sin of hypocrisy may have entered into our lives and into our hearts. Lord, we confess this morning, we are not a perfect people. But Lord, we are desirous to be a people that you find faithful. A people that honor you, a people that glorify you. And so would you help us, Father, to walk in a way this week by the power of your spirit, not in our own flesh, in a way that honors and glorifies you. Father, we pray that you would help us to heed the warning this morning. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.